The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Does the federal government have the ability to force doctors and religious employers to perform sex reassignment surgeries or cover that through their insurance? This is under the Affordable Care Act, Section 1557. It's an anti-discrimination provision. And there's been a lot of back and forth from the Obama administration to Trump to now Biden as to whether or not the Affordable Care Act of Obamacare requires these sorts of experimental treatments, especially on minors. The Trump administration said, no, it does not. The Biden administration most recently has said it's going to apply the law to cover uh, transgender issues. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew and taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. That topic will be coming up at the bottom of the hour. We're going to be talking about the um, uh, imminent religious liberties threat from uh, Health and Human Services, and stick around for that. It's going to be a great conversation. Right now, we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court, not about Justice Breyer's um, retirement. We, we covered that with a little earlier in the show but about a case that's coming back to the Supreme Court. And here to discuss that is Charles, uh, Charles Yates. He's an attorney in Pacific Legal Foundation's Environmental Practice Group, where he litigates to defend private property rights and uphold the structural protections guaranteed by the Constitution's separate, separation of powers. He's originally from Australia and came to the U.S. to get his law degree at the University of Baltimore. And you can find out more about at PacificLegal.org. Charles, welcome to the show. Ed, thanks for having me on. So... I remember Sackett v. EPA from 10 years ago, right, when the, when there was a unanimous court ruling about this couple in Idaho that wanted to build a house on their two-thirds acre plot of land, uh, which wasn't connected to any sort of, you know, uh, river or, or stream, uh, and the EPA started fining them daily for not tearing down the house that they had started to build because it was part of a wetlands and they claimed it was there it was under their jurisdiction under the waters of the United States Act. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, rebuked the EPA, um, rejected the fines, uh, forced the EPA back into judicial review, but they were pointedly avoiding the merits of the case at that time. Now, Charles, at the time, I thought, okay, well, th this is going to clear everything up. <laughs> and I was, I apparently was very wrong because it's coming back to the Supreme Court now 10 years later. Yes, that's, that's correct, Ed. And it really, the second 15-year legal saga, their case against the United States Environmental Protection Agency, it really highlights all that's gone wrong with EPA's administration of the Clean Water Act uh, because... As the Sackett's case demonstrates, EPA insists on, in effect, treating the act as a federal zoning code. Um, it's essentially usurped to itself the power to regulate enormous amounts of private property across the country, and it continues to do so, notwithstanding uh, the intervention of the courts in the Sackett's case previously. So the, the prior Sackett's case, as you mentioned, didn't deal with the merits. Before the Sackett's could even challenge this assertion of authority over their property, they actually had to combat an argument that they didn't even have the right to bring their dispute to court. So back in 2008, when they first brought this lawsuit, the first thing that EPA did in an attempt to, to evade accountability and judicial review was argue that the Sackets didn't even have a right to their day in court. So that's what the, the court dealt with in 2012. It, it unanimously rebuked EPA and said the Sackets do have a right to their day in court. And since then, it's been weaving its way through, through the lower courts where... Uh, 
where the courts are now addressing the the fundamental issue in the case, which is EPA's uh, ability to assert authority over the Sackett's home building project. Well, part part of this is a confusion over the Waters of the United States Act, um, and it, this confusion comes from a prior Supreme Court decision uh, called Rapinos uh, versus the U.S., where the Supreme Court um, sort of chewed over this very ambiguous um, grant of jurisdiction to the EPA uh, and came up with an ambiguous standard of its own that any uh, it could it could assert authority over any land that had and I'm quoting here a significant nexus end quote to bodies of water that the that the waters of the United States Act were was more explicitly aiming to help regulate. And this has helped nobody. It certainly hasn't helped the Sacketts who have spent fifteen years holding this piece of property, hoping to build a home on it, and has been tied up in litigation um, the entire time. This time around, uh, the Supreme Court is taking this up on the merits of the case. Is that my is that correct? Yes, that, that's correct, Ed. So the, the fundamental issue at play in this case is that the statute you mentioned, uh, the Clean Water Act, it provides authority to, to the federal government, namely the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, to regulate water pollution uh, into so-called navigable waters of the United States, right? So it provides a, a limited ground of authority to the federal government to, to regulate discharges of pollutants and other materials into certain water bodies. Now, the crux of the issue is which water bodies are they? Now, the statute refers to these as the navigable waters of the United States, uh, which shouldn't seem too difficult to interpret. But for whatever reason, this term has roiled the agencies for 40 years at this stage. And certainly over the past four presidential administrations and, and going back to the 1980s, the federal government has increasingly uh, granted to itself a very broad authority under this term navigable waters. So they interpret this term navigable waters beginning in the 1980s to mean virtually the entire contiguous United States, uh, all tributaries of traditionally navigable waters, uh, all wetlands. And as you mentioned, in 2006, in the Rapanos case, the Supreme Court stepped in and said, said stop. They, they rebuked the agencies for their claim of such broad authority. Uh, they said the agencies couldn't claim authority virtually over the entire United States. There had to be some connection to a traditionally navigable water. But what the court didn't do, it didn't reach a consensus on the precise test. So in the Rapanos decision, there are two competing tests. Uh, Four justices, uh, led by Justice Scalia, uh, determined that the test should be for wetlands that have a continuous surface water connection. They're actually connected and, and tied up with traditionally navigable waters, relatively permanent waters. Justice Kennedy, running for himself, concurred in that opinion, but his test was slightly different, and that's the significant nexus test that you uh, that you referenced. That basically, uh, he he stated that the EPA could assert authority on the basis of this really fact-intensive significant nexus test, basically whether they could prove some uh, undefined nexus to a, to a traditional waterway. And this obviously creates massive boundary-drawing issues. And since that time, since 2006, the confusion has sort of grown uh, with 
the agency is going back and forth on exactly how to adopt that opinion and exactly what the extent of their authority under the Clean Water Act is. But generally, they've interpreted it very broadly to reach properties like the Sackett and, and essentially to intervene in ordinary land use activities. It really sort of doesn't make any sense that the federal government should be involved in the, in the, uh, the building of a single family home on a dry right. lot in a residential subdivision in Idaho. Right, exactly. I mean, this is, and this is the reason why this is such a, um, an outrageous case. Right. And again, we're speaking with Charles Yates of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew. We're taking your calls at 888-914-9149. I mean, this is this is not a, a you know, a, a 6,000 acre ranch. This isn't a hundred acre uh, farm. This is two thirds of an acre. I, there's my neighbor two doors down from me has a bigger lot than the Sackets do here. I, I mean, this is, it's, it, it's absurd that the federal government took an interest in this particular plot of land in the first place, let alone having uh, tied it up for 15 years. And one has to, one has to assume that the same people who were on the court 10 years ago, are probably not going to be terribly happy to see this case return now. Although, of course, they've granted cert; They're, they want to they want to go over this case. But do you think that the court is going to take up the full merits of this? Do you think that this is that they're looking at this as a, as a way to reset uh, a test for uh, Rapanos, or do you think that they're just going to say, "Look, this is just not working at all, and we're going to negate this whole navigable water thing and send it back to Congress to come up with something else"? Well, uh, we certainly hope that the Supreme Court revisits Rapanos and revisits Rapanos meaningfully, because it truly represents a grave problem in that the, the federal agencies, by expansively defining their own jurisdiction, they're basically seizing authority. Uh, to regulate where, where the states ought to be regulating, far beyond their constitutional reach. Now, as, so we're certainly hopeful that the court will do the right thing, and we think that this is a, a very good vehicle for the court to do so, because it, it truly does highlight the, the grave concerns raised by the federal agency's actions here, and actions that really have true, true implications, real-world implications for landowners every day. Now, the question of whether Congress will revisit this is a tricky one because it, as, as I mentioned, this case has roiled the agencies for 30 years and Congress simply hasn't intervened. Uh, you might note that in, in the prior Sackett case, a Justice Alito actually rebuked the, the agencies and mentioned that this case, that the, the case truly highlights the indeterminacy of the statute and the need for congressional input, uh, but no congressional input has come. So it's really at this stage up to the courts, I think, to bring the agencies back into line because Congress has simply proven itself either unwilling or unable to revisit and fix this problem. That's why we're hopeful that the Supreme Court will intervene here and announce, uh, uh, announce a, a generally applicable and, and clear uh, definition of the term navigable waters. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up um, Justice Alito's um, concurrence in the original Sackett uh, case in, in March of 20, 2012, because you're exactly right. I mean, this is what he writes. Real relief requires Congress to do what it should have done in the first place, provide a reasonably clear rule regarding the reach of the Clean Water Act. Um, and 
uh, when, the, when Congress passed the Clean Water Act in 1972, it provided that the act covers the waters of the United States, but Congress did not def define what it meant by the waters of the United States. It was not a term of art with a known meaning, and the words themselves are hopelessly indeterminate. Unsurprisingly, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers interpreted the phrase as essentially a limitless grant of authority, and then later says, allowing aggrieved property owners to sue under the Administrative Procedure Act is better than nothing, but only clarification of the reach of the Clean Water Act can rectify the underlying problem. So yes, definitely this got kicked back to Congress. We've had uh, six different Congresses since then. We've had three different presidents since then, and I'm not even sure that this has been taken up, let alone um, seriously addressed. Yeah, there, there's been legislation introduced at various points, but it's never gained uh, much traction or really had the support of the leadership uh, within the Congress. And yeah, like you mentioned, uh, there have been three presidential... I mean, the Sackett case has spanned four presidential administrations, none of which have really managed to, to solve this issue. And as we speak, uh, the Biden administration is, is currently about to embark on the fifth attempt uh, since 2015 to define this term. So it, it truly is high time that the courts at least provide some guidance to, to the agencies so that they can, can conform their conduct to the law. Well, and again, I mean, I think that this gets into a larger issue, and I know the Pacific Legal Foundation has quite a few cases that, that, that play into this, a larger issue of the, the problems with agency governance, right? Um, Agency, federal agencies exist as a grant of shared power between the legislature and the executive branch. And so there are certain ways in which they can regulate and enforce those regulations. Uh, that's a blend of legislative and executive powers. Uh, but if Congress doesn't put very clear delineations on these, then they can do what a lot of organizations do, which is empire building. And the EPA has, has done that because Congress has refused to, to specify this. And in, in, in part, that's because it has suited Congresses, and this is not one party or another, but it is suited by Congresses controlled by both parties not to have to take tough votes on regulations. And so they just punt these things to federal agencies with essentially limitless jurisdictions based on ambiguous language from their enabling acts. And this is a problem that that Pacific Legal Foundation uh, runs across quite a bit. Yes, Ed, it's, it's a persistent problem across the executive branch of government, and that's precisely right. I mean, our, our constitutional order uh, grants a sole authority to Congress to legislate, and Congress can delegate certain authority to the to the executive branch in order to uh, enforce and execute the laws it passes. But certainly over the past 100 years, since the New Deal era in particular, we've seen these increasingly broad grants of authority to the executive branch. And as those, those grants of authority have been challenged in the courts, we've seen a body of law, a, a body of precedent in the, in the judiciary arise saying essentially that the agencies have this enormous amount of discretion to interpret the statutes which give them power which really wasn't Chevron, the intention yeah. of the, the constitutional framers. And this matter with the, the navigable waters issue in the Clean Water Act really highlights that issue because that's precisely what's happened is EPA has deliberately chosen to read an ambiguity into this statutory term 
And by reading that ambiguity into the term, it's usurped to itself an enormous amount of authority that goes well beyond uh, anything that the, the that Congress could have meant when it drafted and, and passed this statute back in the 1970s. So this, and again, we're speaking with Charles Yates of Pacific Legal Foundation, pacificlegal.org, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. So this kind of implicates Chevron too, right? I mean, this is not the first case that's come up recently that implicates the Chevron doctrine of um, of deference to agency interpretation. Yes, Ed, and that's certainly an issue that come, comes up a lot in the, the context of the Clean Water Act. I mean, Obviously, I can't speculate on how the federal government is going to defend its actions when we get to briefing the merits in the Supreme Court uh, later this year. But certainly the, the primary approach that the agencies have taken to defending their interpretation of the, of the Clean Water Act has been to rely upon Chevron deference, essentially to argue that the term is ambiguous and that it contains a, that the agencies themselves have a, a, enough uh, expertise and authority to interpret this term basically any way they like and the American people should, should just deal with it is sort of the, <laughs> the argument that they've made. Well, it's the argument that they made. This is the this is the this is a precedent that that courts have followed. It's it's a Supreme Court precedent, and lower courts follow it because the Supreme Court said it. Do you see this as um, this? And and by the way, also in other cases that Pacific Legal and other um, uh, other uh, law firms have been involved in. Do you see this as an opportunity to to rethink Chevron entirely? Because that would be that I know that environmentalists are are very nervous about Sackett returning to the Supreme Court on the merits because they are afraid, and I think they should be, that the court is going to see this as as a way to uh, force the force Congress to act by simply striking down a, a significant part of EPA's authority to regulate um, uh, in, in requiring them to go back and get a separate grant from Congress to to move forward on this. But do you think that the, the implications of this are even broader in that this may be a case in which the Supreme Court says uh, the way that agency law is operating right now is uh, is not tenable and we are going to withdraw the Chevron doctrine and force agencies to provide a rational uh, a rational and firm basis in in their statute for whatever authority it is that they're asserting well the, the chevron implication here it sort of implicates there are there are sort of two steps to the chevron test right the way that chevron right. operates and that sort of goes to the heart of this question so first the court will determine that a statutory term is ambiguous and then if it de determines that the statutory term is ambiguous then it'll go on to the second step and essentially defer to whatever the agency you know whatever rational basis the agency provides for its regulation now i think a lot of the issues with chevron have come down to how the first step operates and i think that's particularly prevalent here is for, for so many years courts were far too eager and they still are far too eager to find an ambiguity in a statute and then proceed to the second step. Now, in the Sackett's case, we argue that the term navigable waters is not actually ambiguous. It is susceptible to, to an ordinary reading, and there are certain constitutional principles and otherwise that would indicate that the agencies must interpret this term, the courts must interpret this term narrowly. So we primarily argue that this isn't an issue at Chevron Step 1. The term's simply not ambiguous, and the courts don't need to defer to the agencies. 
And I think that's uh, an issue we're seeing in a lot of a lot of cases coming before the Supreme Court is uh, is a rethinking of that first step at Chevron. Well, that's it. I mean, and this is I mean, it's really going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. But let's focus at the end here on the sackets. <laughs> I mean, I feel really badly for this couple that all they really wanted to do was purchase a, a residential lot so that they could build uh, they could build a custom house that they wanted to live in and I mean, what's their status what how how are they dealing with this and um what are they saying as as this case is coming back up again well the sackets are certainly glad that they're finally going to have their 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 day in court and, and that they're returned to the supreme court and, and they're hoping that their rights be vindicated because this has taken a Quite a toll on them. I mean, their property has sat vacant for 15 years. I mean, right. 2007, they they started uh, preliminary uh, earth moving activities to build a family home on a on a residential lot in a fully built out subdivision. Uh, within a few weeks, they'd had federal agents enter their property and threaten them. Uh, subsequently, threatened with tens of thousands of dollars in fines. And since then, they've been litigating their ability to to build their home for 15 years now. So they're hoping that. This will, this Supreme Court taking the case and uh, adjudicating the merits of their claim uh, will finally give them some clarity and some relief. Well, and certainly I think it would be nice for them at least to have some sort of certainty at the end of this. And not just the Sackets. It's a whole lot of other people who are looking at this case and wondering, could this happen to me? And the answer has been, so far at least, yes, it could. But hopefully the Supreme Court is going to put an end to that and force Congress to deal with this a little bit more rationally. Charles Yates, Pacific Legal Foundation, pacificlegal.org. Um, thank you for being with us. Any other places that people can go to follow what you're doing? Yes, if you go to our website, pacificlegal.org, we have uh, plenty of coverage of our cases and the Sackett case, and we, we share our pleadings and, and, and other matters related to, to our ongoing litigation related to the Clean Water Act and, and our broader administrative state separation of powers practice. Charles Yates, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit RelevantRadio.com slash Forrester. Get connected. Drew Mariani on Relevant Radio. It's 28 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew and taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Don't forget to, to, to stay tuned for Kale Clark after this show is over, talking about whether or not um, the uh, Russia was uh, correctly consecrated to Mary. I, it's going to be a fascinating topic, and Kale's going to be so good at it. You won't want to miss Kale Clark at 5 o'clock Central. Now let's return to regulation and the federal government and assertions of jurisdiction that are going to be extremely problematic for people of faith. Uh, we're talking about a health and human services super rule um, that is going to pre present an imminent religious liberties threat. According to Catholic Benefits Association, this has been percolating for some time, really ever since uh, ever since the Biden administration took office, it's been percolating for, for that long, but it's going to become acute 
very soon. Doug Wilson is here to talk about that with us. He's the CEO of the Catholic Benefits Association, advocating, supporting, and litigating for the rights of Catholic employers in the areas of employment and healthcare benefits. He is a Marine and a Vietnam veteran and has made a career of reviving struggling hospitals around the United States. He's also led the startup and growth of two new healthcare technology companies. Doug, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Ed, thanks so much. I appreciate the invitation and uh, my condolences to everybody up in Green Bay. <laughs> well, fortunately, I'm in Texas, but we didn't have anything to we didn't we didn't have anything to uh, uh, to, to cheer about either down here. So, uh, uh, I, I think our the one team got bounced out in, in the first round, and uh, the other one wasn't even close. So, yeah, I don't, it's a it's been a fascinating week for football. We could talk about that for a while too, Doug. But let's 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 uh, let's focus on the uh, on this HHS rule. That's that's great. Um, uh, the the HHS uh, religious liberties threat. Um, now this is something that we've kind of expected, right? I mean, we expected the Biden administration to sort of revert back to what the Obama administration was doing uh, uh, as of 2016. This is something a little different, though, right? Well, it, it is and it isn't. Uh, candidate Biden was was pretty clear uh, all the way through the campaign that uh, he was going to restore and and uh, even. Uh, strengthen all of the original language and all of the original intent of what he took to calling Obama Biden care. Uh, and uh, he's made that promise. He hasn't uh, stepped away from it since early in the campaign. Well, right. I mean, this is, I mean, this was a big, this was a, a, a big part of his, his pitch was that he wanted to reverse a lot of Trump uh, administration policies, but specifically those dealing with um, with abortion, with contraception, and and, and the rest of this. Um, again, though, and of, of course, he appointed uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Xavier Becerra to run HHS, and Xavier Becerra is somebody who doesn't have a lot of uh, healthcare experience, but certainly has a lot of experience in being litigious um, against um, uh, pro-life interests. He does. Mr. Becerra has been pretty consistent in, in his uh, prosecution right up to and including uh, nuns that didn't want to uh, provide contraceptives to their employees and uh, uh, alternative uh, clinics uh, available to, uh, to pregnant moms uh, where he went all the way to the Supreme Court to try to get them to post uh, information in their lobbies explaining how they could uh, access abortion. So he, his behavior is, is certainly not unexpected, and, and he has a long track record. So let's talk about what's in this HHS 2022 Super Rule. Um, on Catholic Benefits Association webpage, that's catholicbenefitsassociation.org, um, this is how it starts out. The HHS 2022 Super Rule will mandate everything from surgical abortion through transgender services it will mandate the provision of these services in almost every employer's health plans, as well as participation in the provision of these services by healthcare providers and hospitals. Now, um, that is going to be a serious issue for Catholic providers, for Catholic hospitals, for Catholic uh, Catholic employers, that especially those that uh, self-insure. Um, and this is again sort of this. The same battle, only maybe a little bit more broad than uh, that happened with the HHS contraception mandate that uh, came down, I believe it was in uh, early 2012. Uh, it, it is, and, and there is history there. Ed, if, if I could digress just a little bit to, to kind of set, set the ground uh, for this. 
Yeah, 11 years ago when, when the Affordable Care Act made its way through Congress, there, there was almost nobody who really knew everything that it contained, and in many cases what it didn't contain. I think it was famously stated by, and I, I want to say it was Ms. Pelosi, that if you want to know what's in it, you have to pass it. Yep. And they did. And there were a lot of empty boxes in there, and they had lofty titles like Women's Preventive Health Care, which seemingly innocuous and who couldn't support that. But what happened was these empty boxes were sent over to the administrative state, the various governmental agencies uh, that essentially reflect the ideological leanings of, of the incumbent at that time, Obama uh, administration. And the frightening part of this is that these uh, non-elected uh, people and organizations issue rules and regulations that, that really carry the effect of, of laws and oftentimes contain monetary or uh, other penalties that can be very severe for non-compliance. And HHS has taken a, a really high profile and leading role in, in that kind of activity. That first mandate that you referred to, the uh, we refer to it as the CASC mandates, that's contraceptives, abortifacients, sterilization, and related counseling services, was really the first try at mandating ideological compliance uh, and it contained very, very narrow religious exemptions limited essentially to, to church entities only. That resulted in over 100 lawsuits uh, that gained protections in various degrees for religious employers, uh, but it's still in full force. A lot of people aren't, aren't aware of that. Um, it was their first uh, attempt at this, and by the time they tried another one in 2016, they'd become a, a little more bold uh, when they issued the transgender services mandate, which took that next step in, in eliminating religious and conscious rights. There were none included in this one. And it expanded from just providing insurance coverage to actually requiring participation in the full range of transgender services from physiological or psychological counseling uh, to hormone administration, surgical services by healthcare professionals and uh, healthcare facilities. So they broadened it and they started requiring actual participation by people of, of faith and conscience. Um, in the six years since that time, there's there's been a mixed bag of uh, litigation and results, if you will. Uh, in one case, a circuit court, a federal court ordered vacature. They said that the rule was flawed. We refer to it as the 2016 rule. Right. And it should go back to HHS and, and they should fix it. Another federal court said, no, the rule's just fine, reinstate it. And in two cases, there were clear wins against it. Uh, one of those was, was by uh, our good friends at Beckett, and the other was uh, CBA on behalf of our membership. In the meantime, it got more complicated in that uh, the 2020 rule, as we refer to it, came out of the Trump administration and essentially fixed all of the problems that we had, but was immediately mired down in federal court. So that's that's been the, the progress that's brought us to where we are now and to now President Biden promising that he would fix this when, when he got into office. We are speaking so, with... Uh, I'm sorry, we are speaking with Doug Wilson, CEO of Catholic Benefits Association, taking your calls at 888 914 914 888 914 914 uh, Doug, the, uh, I guess the, the, the question then is, you had some wins, you had some, you had some um, 
I wouldn't necessarily call them losses, but stalls. And then Trump reset the whole thing by issuing a, a much better uh, uh, regulation in 2020. Does that mean you really have to start over from scratch all over again? Or do some of the wins that took place um, in the 2012 and the 2016 rules, do you think that those are going to be precedential when you get into court with some of these things? Well, we're, we're certain of that. With uh, CBAs had uh, three wins now, two of them on, on, again, I call them the cast mandates, the contraceptive mandates, yep. and uh, also the transgender mandates, and in those cases, we won permanent injunctive, injunctive relief for all of our CBA members and, interestingly, for all of our future CBA members uh, who, who join us. So those we, we really see standing, and some of the issues that are being raised in this current uh, proposed rule are things that we already have protection against. So we're, we're really going to be looking at the new one in, in the light of what, what have they added to it. And, they have added a lot to it. Uh, this one goes all the way to the extent of, of surgical abortion uh, and discrimination penalties, boycotts and sanctions. There's a lot in this new one that we will be back uh, in court working on behalf of our membership. Yeah, I'm actually interested to hear what's new in this because I, I, I am not familiar with the, with the newer portions of this. Um, and also talking about um, the new definition of punishable discrimination, because that's something you highlight at CBA as well. Uh, we are very aware of that, and this is there's there's been a consistent progress in, in what they've tried to do in in this. In, in the first one, the, the contraceptive mandates, the penalties were financial, and penalties there, there were at least some scant religious uh, uh, exemptions allowed. In the second one. Uh, all those religious exemptions were gone, and now they were demanding participation by individuals and, and by uh, healthcare organizations. And as you alluded to a minute ago, uh, this this could literally devastate. If, if this were to happen the way it's currently written, uh, we're looking at a choice for Catholic healthcare of either walking away from our principles and, and our, our morals and ethics, uh, or being out of business. So. Uh, there is a lot that's new in here. Um, requests, for, by way of example, requests for exemptions based on religious or conscience, and, and think of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or some of the other uh, grounds on which we typically litigate. That's actually deemed as discriminatory. Uh, and the covered, the covered entities here uh, include all employers, government contractors, insurance carriers, third-party administrators, and every single type of health plan you mentioned, self-funded plans earlier, uh, they're they're included in all of this uh, as well. And interestingly, there's also penalties in here that actually amount to uh, boycott-like sanctions, uh, refusal to contract with entities that don't comply with with these new new demands and new services. What I find interesting about this too, I mean, at least in terms of what's uh, on on your uh, in your analysis of this is that invoking the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which I would presume would be done through a court action, uh, would be punishable by HHS. And it does remind me, we just got done talking to uh, 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 an attorney from the uh, uh, Pacific Legal Foundation regarding a, a case with the, um, the EPA, where the EPA was um, 
racking up fines on a couple that was trying to build a house on something they considered a wetland. This, this case went back 10 years ago and refused to allow them to go to a judge to, to review the case. And the Supreme Court had to intervene um, and, and strike all the fines and tell the EPA that you can't punish people for seeking judicial intervention. It sounds like, and I'm, I, I want to just make sure that I'm clear on this, Doug, it sounds like the new HHS rule is going to basically do the same thing that the EPA was doing uh, and that the Supreme Court struck down in 2012. Uh, I think I'm going to add you to my, my legal team here. We've had a similar discussion. <laughs> and, 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 and yes, you're, you're spot on. Uh, but, but the way this is written, uh, the actual mandate, and, and could, could I talk a little bit about how, they, how we got to this? Because there's, there's yeah. a little bit of concern on the part of some folks. Is, is this really going to happen? And what happened here is with all the confusion that, that uh, the Biden administration walked into with, with vacature orders and orders to reinstate and two wins by Beckett and CBA and the 2020 rule from Trump, uh, they committed to, we're just going to replace this whole thing with, with a new rule. And that was fine. A, a group of 30 progressive uh, healthcare and sexual rights groups, uh, including Planned Parenthood and Southern Poverty Law Center and, and 28 more, actually presented the administration with a roadmap that said, here's what this new rule should have in it, 74 pages worth. Uh, they said, yep, we're, we're going to get this thing done. When it didn't happen, one of those uh, authors of that group, uh, a clinic, uh, Whitman Walker, actually filed suit in federal court to force HHS to get a replacement rule on the books for this. Uh, they're an ad advocacy group and a clinic uh, for general and dental health, uh, gender-affirming gender uh, health care. Administration said they were working on it, and this went through a number of, of uh, continuances in court, at which point Walker Whitman became impatient, requested that the court force this case to, to be activated and move forward. And in their response to this, and this is the basis of everything that, that has happened over the last couple of months, HHS replied to the request to activate that case by saying, we're going to have this rule by 2022. In their response, they included the 74-page, what we call the Whitman-Walker uh, document. And HHS, this is a quote, said, they will be happy with the new rule. So that's the basis for this. The judge, being probably a little seasoned and cynical, said that's fine, but you need to report back to me every two months. So uh, we're actually anxiously looking forward to uh, next week on January 31st when HHS is required to file their first progress report on this thing. But they have committed in federal court to, to promulgate this rule by April. So, so yeah, I mean, this has been percolating for a while because, I mean, there's a um, National Catholic Register story on this that goes back to November. And I mean, this is, I don't, I don't know that that actually captured the scope of just how bad this was going to be, but I, I find it difficult to believe that a, a judge is going to sign off on something that says you can't take things to court um, or that you'll be punished for taking things to court. But that does sound like exactly where HHS wants to take this. It, it is. And, and just by way of, of clarifying, uh, nobody knew about any of this until it was actually in late October. It was my legal team that 
regularly reviews all the court activities on these kinds of activities, and yep. one of them was was focused enough that he actually saw this apparently meaningless uh, continuance request, read it, found the 74-page document, and we immediately uh, shared that with our friends at Beckett, with ADF, with National Catholic Register. Um, this this is so significant and so serious that, that the word needed to get out quickly, and that's why I'm grateful that you've uh, allowed me to, to be with you today. Oh, absolutely. And again, we're speaking with Doug Wilson, CEO of the Catholic Benefits Association, talking about this new HHS 2022 Super Rule. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how it's going to be enforced and who's going to do the enforcing and all sorts of other different implications of this HHS new Super Rule coming down the pike. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester. Your Life Connected, The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew. Don't forget, Kale Clark is coming up uh, at the top of the hour, talking about whether the consecration of um, uh, Russia to Mary was uh, done effectively. That should be a fascinating topic, so be sure to stick around 5 o'clock Central Time. We are speaking with Doug Wilson, the CEO of Catholic Benefits Association. That's CatholicBenefitsAssociation.org. Uh, advocating, supporting, and litigating for the rights of Catholic employers. In fact, maybe, Doug, you should tell us a little bit about CBA uh, before we move on to uh, talk more about this uh, new HHS rule. Oh, well, thanks, Ed. I appreciate that. Uh, back in uh, 2013, and we've we've discussed this, when uh, the first of the Obamacare mandates uh, came out, and all forms of negotiating and talking and asking for relief uh, from the government failed, uh, Archbishop Lori, uh, who was the founder and then chairman for many years of the USCCB Religious Liberty Committee, uh, was tasked with doing something about that, if you will. And, and from that came an association of uh, Catholic employers. It, we started with probably 15, 20 dioceses. Uh, we've grown now to 74 dioceses and over a thousand Catholic uh, affiliates, hospitals, universities, religious orders, uh, et cetera, and also private Catholic employers, both for-profit and not-for-profit. But our focus is on litigating on behalf of our, our membership, and we've actually uh, secured permanent injunctive relief for more Catholic employers than all of the other litigations uh, combined. Uh, we stay focused on the health care benefits and, and uh, employment issues for our membership. And this is a, unfortunately a growing a, a growing responsibility these days, especially over the last you know ten twelve years or so. This has become a huge a huge um, liability for for employers, not just Catholic employers, but but definitely including Catholic employers. And so it's it's a it's a almost a necessity to be part of these types of efforts. 
Well, it's gratifying for us because every time uh, CBA wins, uh, everybody benefits because our right. our arguments are based on religious liberty, and that spreads across all of the religions and all of the people of conscience. So, uh, while we are exclusively Catholic and focused that way, um, I think we're working for everybody uh, of religious and and conscience. Well, that's yeah, I completely agree with you on this, Doug. And I mean, that's the way that these things work. The reason why we fight for liberty is so that liberty liberty can be expanded and protected for all. And it does require people to stand up and 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 make those arguments and and fight those fights. But the the net result is to is to make things uh, more free for everybody. Um, now, Doug, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I I just. Uh, always try to keep in mind that we're actually not fighting to take anything away from anybody. And, right. And that, that's an, it's an important point. All we're asking is that the rights of, of uh, religious and conscience individuals uh, be respected just the same as, as everybody else's. Absolutely. Uh, getting back to uh, the, the analysis here at CatholicBenefitsAssociation.org of the new HHS 2022 Super Rule, um, you know, we've already talked about what entities are going to be included in terms of being regulated by this rule. I think we want to talk about how this is going to be enforced because there's a couple of things that are sort of eye popping in in this bullet uh, in this bullet list. You expect the government agencies involved to to do enforcement. That's nothing new. Individuals, including employees, patients, and health plan enrollees, um, I suppose you could say that that's part of an enforcement action through private legal action. Uh, that's a little interesting. Um, whistleblowers through uh, key Tom suits by activists and others. Now that is that is just opening up all sorts of um, Pandora's boxes, <laughs> as far as the eye can see. It, the way it's laid out right now, they're they're making the legal arguments up front. They're they're discounting all of the religious protections, uh, the Hyde Amendments, and and all of the other, uh, the Establishment Clause, uh, Religious Freedom uh, Restoration Act. And at the same time, they're they yes, they are opening the door through uh, discrimination uh, law to individual uh, lawsuits. So. In other words, an employee uh, who feels that the benefits aren't as inclusive as they ought to be or someone who goes to the Catholic hospital can't get a particular service. They're opening the door to, to just endless litigation. Well, and I think that's almost the point here, right? I mean, what they're trying to do is they're trying to structure this so that anybody who might be uh, at, you know, even thinking about bucking the, um, bucking the regulation here is going to be sued into oblivion um, and by sort of this expansive grant of standing to uh, to activists to bring lawsuits um, regardless I think regardless of uh, uh, their specific connection to a specific employer and a specific policy it's it's the final step in what we've seen since since the contraceptive mandates uh, and it, it yes uh, Compliance with this will simply shut down Catholic health care. And when you keep in mind that one out of every six beds in this country is in a Catholic hospital, that's a pretty significant uh, problem. It's a very significant problem. And, and I think that this is the we were talking a little bit about this in an earlier segment, just uh, in a completely different context. But this is sort of the lawfare strategy. Right. And this is. 
something that we already see probably too often uh, in terms in the business world, but this is the government more or less giving this uh, giving a grant for this. It, it is, and, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out at the other end of the rulemaking process. And, and we're assuming that they'll follow the, the uh, Act, uh, and if that's the case, we'll see a, a notice of, of proposed rulemaking. There'll be a period of public comment uh, available, um, obviously very involved in, in rallying uh, support for, for our concern there, uh, and then the one final rule is, is promulgated, and we don't think that the public comment period will necessarily have uh, enough impact on it to make it acceptable. Um, we're going to be prepared to engage. Uh, and as you say, this is going to open the door to, to broad and, and voluminous litigation for years to come. Years to come, yes. And then the sanctions, um, loss of Medicare, Medicaid funds, false claims, act remedies, trouble damages, Compensatory damages, punitive damages, cost, attorney fees. Those are the types of things that you kind of expect to see out of this type of rule rulemaking, but um, up to five years imprisonment of responsible persons. I, I am not clear as to HHS's ability to, to, to prosecute criminal cases through the regulatory process. I am, I'm a little mystified by that one, Doug. Well, we we are too, uh, and and uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I try to be very careful about uh, uh, waxing legal. But uh, yeah, there are things here that that are just such obvious overreaches uh, that that you know those aren't the ones that we worry about. They're the the, the less uh, obvious encroachments that, right. that will cause the problem. Some some of these things are just simply. Uh, wishful thinking on the part of, of the progressive groups that are backing this. Well, you know, this is part of the uh, another part of the issue here too is that uh, there's there's been a sort of a um, I think you're seeing voters reacting to sort of a bait and switch in terms of buying a centrist, getting a getting a, a hard left progressive. Um, I don't think anybody was terribly anybody's going to be terribly surprised because on this po on, on these points i think that biden and his team incoming were were pretty clear that this is what they were going to be doing anyway as you mentioned earlier but just the the breadth of it is pretty breathtaking well what i really see is as something that will make this more a more realistic probability than it, it might otherwise be and that is their inability to get anything through the legislative process and yeah. if in fact they lose Congress in the next election, the only way they're going to be able to serve their their progressive uh, contingent demands is going to be through regulatory activities. And personally, my opinion is that's exactly what this is, will be intended to do. Doug Wilson, thank you so much for being with us. Go to CatholicBenefitsAssociation.org to find out more about this. CatholicBenefitsAssociation.org slash threat to religious liberty. That's where you need to go to find out more about this. Coming up next, The Kale Clark Show. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew. Have a great evening. <laughs>